the last four weeks, we went through the book of Ruth. And we did a chapter at a time, which was a lot for people. And these next eight weeks, we're going to be going through the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount one at a time. So for the next eight weeks, we're just going to do one verse instead of a whole chapter. Some of you would be happy about that. If you're a guest here today, my name is Greg, one of the pastors, and I'm glad you're here. Special uh, weekend, so uh, roll with it, and we'll be good. I have a little confession to make as I get started here. I was a little cold when I got here. When I got here this morning, I found this sweater in the lost and found. There's that. I'm just saying that because it might be yours. And if it's yours, thank you. <laughs> you had your chance. It's been there a couple of weeks as long as I've been here, so there we go. I just I had to get that out of the way. So, welcome. Glad you're here. Looking forward to this series, Beatitudes, maybe my favorite passage in the Bible. And so we're going to go through this. So, Matthew 3.2 says this. Repent of your sins, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, if you look through the Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's about 10 different times that this phrase or something like this phrase is used in the early stages of the Gospels. And so most of us have some idea of repent of your sins. And if that's a new concept to you, repent means to turn around and go the other way. It actually means to make a 180. We're going our own way, then we go the other opposite way to go with God. Less of a, fewer of us have an idea of what it means for the kingdom of heaven to be near. And so what we're going to do today, I'm going to try and give you an introduction and then get to the first beatitude. But it's going to be an elongated introduction just to kind of set the stage for us for the next eight weeks. And so I'm, I'm excited to get this because it's important that we look behind the scenes, set the context, so we really begin to understand what's going on. So we're asking, what does this mean? So here's a way to think about it. Last June 6th was the 75th anniversary or commemoration of the successful invasion of the Allied troops on Normandy Beach. Battle took a couple of weeks, I think, if I remember right. But the successful invasion on Normandy Beach in World War II, it broke the back of Hitler's army, and the end of the war was inevitable. But if you remember your history, it took another 11 months for VE Day, or Victory Europe Day, which was in May 1945. So another 11 months after the back of Hitler's army was broken, 11 months before they marched on Berlin. And some of the fiercest fighting of the war occurred during that 11-month period. The Battle of the Bulge, for instance, which, if I have my facts correct, more casualties in that battle than any other battle of the war. And so if we relate that to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, interchangeable, is near to relate that those historical facts can be likened to the kingdom of God. So when Jesus came the first time, he established the kingdom of God on the earth. It's here. 
That's why Jesus is saying this and, and 10 other times in the Gospels. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. So he established the kingdom of God at his first coming. And he's going to consummate the kingdom of God at his second coming. And I want to show you a crude... Um, I got this out of one of my theology books. It doesn't say everything I wanted to say, but I think this can help you, a, a good visual. Can you see over here? Can you see this? Or, but you can see behind me too, right? So there's that. So here we have the Old Testament uh, period here. This is our time-space continuum at the bottom. And so Jesus comes the first time, and the kingdom of God is established on the earth. And then when he comes the second time, it'll be consummated, and then we move on into the age to come. And so this is the New Testament period. Another way to think of this time period, it's the, it's the church age. It's the age of the church. And so where are we on this continuum? I don't know. You know, we could be here, we could be here, or we could be very close to the end times when Jesus is coming back. We don't know, but we're somewhere in here. And here's something else that I think needs to be settled, just to step out for a second. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the end times began. So when you hear this talk about, I think we're at the end times. No, we've been at the end times since the ascension. This is all end times in that period. And so Jesus, what we want to see is that Jesus established the kingdom of God, and he's going to come back and consummate the kingdom. Here's how that, how that focuses for us. You and I have the privilege and the responsibility of living in this in-between period of time. Now, let me tell you something that's really going to help us, hopefully in our daily lives, as individuals, as families, and as the church. Here's how you can look at what's happened here. Jesus comes, establishes the kingdom, and then he reaches into the age to come. He reaches into eternity, grabs a hold of eternity, he pulls it into the present, and he stakes it into the ground with the cross. What are the implications of that? The implications of that is that we live in this divine tension. We live in, in the already and the not yet. What it means is that you and I have access to the presence and the power of God in a way that nobody else in the history of the world has had it. Certainly not the Old Testament, but when God grabs hold of eternity, a future, brings it into the present, establishes it with the cross, that makes us accessible to the presence and power of God in a brand new way. What does that mean for us? We can know God. We can know God. George Ladd, in his classic book, it's called The Gospel of the Kingdom. He wrote a lot about the kingdom. Excellent theologian. He defines the kingdom of God as the rule and the reign of God. The kingdom was proclaimed by Christ in the New Testament. His teaching, the teachings of Jesus, uh, teaching that the kingdom had come, that was central to his ministry. There were words designed to tell us how to enter into the kingdom of God, and there were works that demonstrated that the kingdom had come. The healings, the deliverance, the feeding of the 5,000, etc. Those were works that demonstrated the kingdom of God. In fact, that's another definition of the kingdom of God, the words and the works of Jesus. That's how you know that the kingdom is here. And 
what I want to say to you is you and I both have access to the words and the works of Jesus because of what he has done. And so the parables taught the mysteries of the kingdom of God, and his prayers taught the disciples to desire the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And that will affect our prayer life. I'll talk about that in a minute. And you and I are living in this already but not yet tension, established but not consummated. This time frame, you and I are being raised up to be instruments of the kingdom of God. That's part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're instruments of his kingdom. In other words, we have the privilege and the responsibility to speak the words and do the works that Jesus did. That might be a whole new concept for you to see, but he's invited us in. In fact, in, in John's gospel, he says, greater things than these shall you do. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the kingdom of God is a revolutionary message with revolutionary implications. It changes every, if it's true, it changes everything. Do you see that? If it's true, if he did this and gave us access, if this is true, it changes everything. God wants you to be an instrument of the kingdom, speaking his words and doing his works. This changes our understanding of the Lord's prayer too. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a lot of times we're taught or we just think that when we say that kingdom come, they will be done, is, is Jesus come quickly. You know, end this thing. Get us out of here. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, I want your kingdom to break through in, in new ways in my life, in my marriage, if you're married, in my family, in this church. I want you to hear that, that God wants to break through in some new areas and this, his kingdom wants to, to come and be established afresh. And then in our culture too, we're praying in the Lord's prayer for his kingdom to come and his will to be an inbreaking of the kingdom of God manifest in the earth. That's actually what we're praying for. And so this revolutionary message makes Jesus the most revolutionary person who ever lived. And I don't want us to, to not see that. The most revolutionary person who ever lived. His purpose in coming was to initiate a revolution. That's why he came. When Jesus Christ showed up, he announced that the old kingdom, the kingdom of this world, is going to crumble. And he came to establish a new kingdom that'll last way beyond the consummation period. This brings us to Matthew 5, verses 7, the, the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we call it. We can think of the Sermon on the Mount as a kingdom manifesto of Jesus, the revolutionary figure who comes. What's a manifesto? If that word's not clear to you, a manifesto was a published declaration of the intentions, the motives, the views of the issuer. So, for instance, the Ten Commandments is a manifesto. Uh, the, the United States Declaration of Independence, that's a manifesto. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, that's a manifesto. And the Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom manifesto. At its core, Christianity is counterintuitive and it's a, a subversive revolution. 
The Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom of God manifesto. It's the declaration that with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has been established on the earth, and it's seen through the eyes of faith. When our heart comes alive with the gospel, we see the king. Oh, there it is. Have you ever read the Bible and read a verse maybe a hundred times, and then one day you see something new, it's something fresh. It's like, oh, oh, that's what it means. That's how the kingdom becomes real to us. And we'll be talking about that as we move through the Beatitudes. Here's what John Stott, one of my literary mentors, he died a few years ago, a pastor, author, missiologist. Here's what he said about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teachings of Jesus, though arguably it's the least understood. It's the nearest thing to a manifesto that has ever been uttered, that he ever uttered, for it is, it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. If you ever get a chance to read more of John Stott, do it. Good theology. The Sermon on the Mount is only 109 verses. It takes 10 to 15 minutes to read the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's widely thought that what Matthew was doing, and there's a bit of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's gospel as well, but it's thought that what Matthew is doing is, is giving us the Cliff Notes version of the Sermon on the Mount, the highlights of Jesus' sermon. So don't think any of our sermons are ever going to be 10 to 15 minutes. That's, that's what I'm trying to say to you. We got the Cliff Notes in Matthew 5 to 7. And I also want to mention to you that we have this bookmark, and uh, we, we put it like on every other chair. And I'd like you to put this in your Bible and go through it, it's, it's an overview of all the Beatitudes. And I'd like you to consider reading the whole Sermon on the Mount from week to week. Uh, if you can't do the whole thing, then read the Beatitudes and look at this and get an overview so that you're somewhat prepared to come here on Sunday as we dive deeper and deeper into these Beatitudes. So we made these for you. Stick it in your Bible, take it home, it'll be good. The Beatitudes, are some of the most important words in the New Testament because they tell us how to enter into the kingdom of God. I've studied this for years. I've come to see that the Beatitudes are our surrendered response to the gospel of the kingdom of God. How does that work? I wanna show you a graphic that we're gonna use every week for the next eight weeks. This is a way to view it, and for a lot of you, this will be a different way to see the Beatitudes. So we're entering into the kingdom. It's much like entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so there's, what there is is an, there's an emptying of self as we move through the first Beatitudes that, that grows in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, and then there's a filling as we move up, and then we get to, to persecuted, and what I, what I see happening in this is once we get here, we come back here. And, and this is, a, it, it's cyclical or cyclical, cyclical. It's cyclical, and I think we move through this for the rest of our lives. And we always come back 
to these three things. Poor in spirit, which we'll talk a little bit about today. Mourning is a, is a repentance. We're mourning over our brokenness and the brokenness of the world around us. Meekness, it says on your bookmark, is a, is a we, we become humble learners before God. That's what meekness means. We'll go into that in more detail. And then as, as we empty ourselves, we get really hungry and really thirsty, really for God. I want to... I want to be the man that you call me to be, God. I want to be the woman that you called me to be. And, 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 and out of that, we move back up, and, and a filling takes place. We've received God's mercy, so we begin to give God's mercy to ourselves and to other people. Uh, mercy produces a purity of heart. We'll go into that. And then we become peacemakers instead of peacekeepers. And then the persecution comes. And then we go back. So I wanted you to see that. So the Beatitudes provide for us this this step-by-step spiritual formation process. It's counterintuitive to our culture. And I think for a lot of us, it's counterintuitive uh, for us as well. How can being poor in spirit and mourning and being meek bring me to joy? But it does. It's it's the unlikely route to joy. It's that idea of grief that you that you've got to go through grief to get to joy. You've got to go through grief. We want to go around grief to get back to normal. That's every one of us. But you have to go through grief. You have to go through your own issues to get to the joy of God. And this takes us through that to get to the joy. So it's the unlikely route to joy. The the Beatitudes become the inworking and the outworking of the gospel in us primarily, and then through us. It works in us and then through us. It's important to see that. And I hope that it launches a church-wide revolution in our church, in this church. As we, as we gather and engage and listen, study God's word, worship together, and see what God has. So in his seminal work, one of my other literary mentors, a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he pastored Westminster Chapel in downtown London for about 30 years. And he's got a great commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that I've appreciated very much over the years. This is what he says. He says, we're not told in the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will be a Christian. Rather, we are told, because you are a Christian, it is possible to live like this. And as we go through the Beatitudes, I want to let you know, we can't do any of that by ourselves. We can't be poor in spirit by ourselves. You can't mourn by yourself. We need the grace of God in our lives and in our hearts in order to actually take on these characteristics and qualities in our lives. We can't do it on our own. We need Christ to walk with us in that. So today we're going to be looking at the first beatitude. It's on page 802 in the uh, uh, Bibles that you have there. And it occurred to me, we're calling it Read the Red, right? And a lot of you know that in a lot of translations, a lot of Bibles, the words of Jesus are in the red. I think in our Bibles here in the worship center, it's not in the red. Uh, And so if that's confusing to you, that's why we do it. Because in a lot of Bibles, the words of Jesus are in the red. So that's why we're calling it that. So we're going to be looking at the first beatitude. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. In the next part of the series, as we move on, I want to read all the Beatitudes as we get into one, but for time's sake, because we had this extra long introduction, uh, we're not going to do that today. But I did want to show you how some other translations of the Bible render this verse. So the ESV, English Standard Version, 
It said blessed. You can say blessed or blessed. It doesn't matter. Uh, I like blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The ISV, International Standard Version, how blessed are those who are destitute in spirit because the kingdom from heaven belongs to them. When I read this, I thought of our last study in Ruth, and I thought of Naomi, that she got to a place where she, she was destitute and desperate. And she acknowledged that to God if you were here for those. And, and she was angry and mad at God, and she acknowledged that, which is a good thing. That's what we determined, that that's a good thing. God can take it when you're angry or hurt uh, with him or with circumstances. And we saw her as, as a destitute person who was honest with God, cried out to God, and he met her in a beautiful way. And then I like the message. It's a paraphrase, but I like it. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. I love that. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? But it's real, and it's true. So as we move into this, pray with me for a moment that, uh, that the Holy Spirit would help us to learn. Kind Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thanks for this weekend. Thank you for this church. Thank you for what you have in store for us in the days ahead. I pray that you would electrify us afresh with insight into your kingdom having been established and you inviting us into a place to speak the words and do the works of Jesus in a whole new way. So we give this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the rest of our time, I would like us to consider two really obvious but in extremely important concepts. So I'm going to give you a couple questions, uh, and then we're going to go back and look at those, or a couple of statements, and we'll go back and look at them one at a time. The first one, what does it mean to be blessed? Obvious but important. Second one is what it means to be poor in spirit. That's important as well. So let's go one at a time. What, what does it mean to be blessed? The word beatitude, this will be a review for many of you. The word beatitude comes from the Latin word meaning blessed. And the word carries the idea of being graced with divine favor. That's another indication that we can't do this on our own. We can't bless ourselves. We can't work up the blessing. We need God to come and grace us with his divine favor. More specifically, the word beatitude or blessed means exalted joy and true happiness. In our modern culture today, our English language culture, uh, we oftentimes confuse the word joy with happiness, don't we? And there's some overlapping capacities there, but they're distinctive. And let's take a look at that. Happiness comes from the same root word as the word happenstance. It's related primarily to our circumstances. The prefix there, hap, H-A-P, means luck. And so happenstance, happiness, it, 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 it revolves around our circumstances. Sometimes our circumstances are good, and we're happy. Sometimes our circumstances aren't so good, we're not happy. And I'd like to distinguish that from the word joy. Joy, on the other hand, is an orientation of the heart. Joy is a settled state of contentment, of confidence, of hope. It's residential. It's not 
dependent on our outward circumstances. It rests in here. And that's what I want for you. We say something about, I just want my kids to be happy. I'm like, no. No. I want joy for them. I don't want them to always have happy circumstances so they'll be happy. No, God, take them through what you need to take them through to get them to joy. I don't always say that when somebody says to me, I just want my kids to be happy. No, stop. But I'm thinking it. I'm thinking it. Joy is something or someone that provides the source of our happiness. And that's how we begin to get it in right order. Happiness is external, and joy is internal. Someone defined joy as calm delight. And here's another way I think it's, it's really said well. Uh, an author said this, peace is joy at rest, and joy is peace on its feet. Isn't that awesome? I love that. That brings us to the second uh, point here. What it means to be poor in spirit. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. A lot of you have heard that word or seen that word. It's used a variety of ways in the New Testament. In this context here, it's speaking of the center. It's speaking of the source of human affection, emotion, and desire. That's what that word spirit is. It's not God's spirit. It's that thing in us, our emotions, our affections, and our desires. The word for poor used in ancient Greek was tokos. I don't know why I put that up for you. Maybe you think I'm smart now if I put the Greek up there on the, on the screen. Uh, but I'd just like you to see that, 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 that we've done some research on this. But, but the word describes someone whose poverty, whose infirmity is so deep that all they can do is beg. That's all they got. That's all they can do is beg. Their poverty, their infirmity is so deep. They are utterly dependent in every way on someone else. And God wants us to go to that place where you and I are poor in spirit. And therein lies the tension, right? It's hard for us to surrender and go there. Where we say, I got, I got nothing except for you. I invite you to surrender to that place. Everything comes to this poor in spirit person from an outside source. To be poor in spirit means several things. I want to provide four bullet points for you. They're overlapping, but I think it'll be helpful. Poor in spirit is a growing awareness of utter dependence on God to overcome our spiritual poverty, bankruptcy, spiritual bankruptcy, and helplessness before God. It's a growing awareness. First step, you be, God, I'm willing for you to take me there. I trust you. I want the kind of joy that the pastor's talking about, and I'm willing to surrender. Have you take me there so I can be on a journey towards that kind of residential joy in my life? The second one, a growing awareness 
of our powerlessness to accomplish anything of eternal value. Here's what I'd say to you. I've been married 40, I think it's one, 41 years. Um, Linda deserves more than I am capable of providing for her as her husband. I can't go there. She deserves more from me. My kids deserve more from me than I can by myself provide for them. We have six grandsons. They deserve more from me than what I can provide in my own strength and power. So that's what that means, a growing awareness of our powerlessness to accomplish anything of eternal value. That's when we surrender. And we acknowledge that there's people in our lives that deserve more. And we can't get there from here. And that's another reason to surrender afresh, to become poor in spirit. Two more, I think, yeah. A growing awareness of our moral and ethical impurity before God. And here's the deal. To be in the presence of God takes perfection. So if you are not perfect, if you get into the presence of God, you'll, you'll burn like a fuse. That's why we need Jesus, isn't it? Jesus came. He left the comfort, the joy, the perfection of heaven. He comes down into our brokenness. He lives a perfect life, and he dies a criminal's death so that you and I can have access to God. So when we're talking about an awareness of our moral, ethical impurity, when, when the Bible says our heart is wicked, it doesn't mean that, that your heart or my heart is as, is as wicked as it could be. What it means is that we, we lack moral perfection and we still can't be in the presence of God without the gospel, without the cross, without a, a growing understanding of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. I have more gospel in my head than I have in my heart. Maybe you do too. But one of my constant prayers, oh Lord, move my understanding of the gospel from here 18 inches and then let me see it afresh. So I constantly go back to God and worship him because of what he has done. The, the last one, a growing sense that if we are to experience true happiness or exalted joy, it will have to be God's doing. So our prayers, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. Let me see what you have for me. Let, me. let me see and experience the beauty and the wonder of what you endured so that I could be in the presence of God. And that changes us. It motivates us in a whole, in a whole different way. Moving on, as you can see, these are counter, counterintuitive to our culture and, and even to us as people uh, who attend church. Here's what Bible teacher and author John MacArthur says about being poor in spirit. He says, because being poor in spirit is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian, all other characteristics flow from this one. This is where everything starts. And the key element in this poor in spirit is humility. That's where it all starts. And that mentor I told you about, the literary mentor that I've had, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Westminster Chapel in London, 
in his commentary, he, he continues to talk about, we need to keep showing up at Matthew 5, verse 3. Your whole life, keep showing up at Matthew 5, 3. Lord, I surrender to you afresh. Show me who you are. I want to be humble before you. I want to be the man. I want to be the woman that you've called me to be. The people in my life, they deserve more. And I want to surrender myself to be that person. Conclusion. This is a good place for our um, big idea. So if you don't get anything else, this is it. So um, sweet surrender. It reminded me of a Sarah McLaughlin song, but some of you don't know that. It's 1998. Good song. Good, good lyrics, too. Sweet surrender is admitting that I do not have the spiritual resources necessary to carry out God's requirements. Amen? And that I need God's free generosity at the cross, gospel, to liberate my soul to love and to live the way that God intends. That's why we're going to spend some time in the Beatitudes. If you're already a Christian, maybe you need to recalibrate today. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're, I, I've been resistant towards God. Maybe you need to recalibrate today. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, today would be a good day to join the family of God, to surrender. And then some of us need to surrender afresh to the love and the grace and the mercy and the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of a God who sent his son to die so that we could have access to God. I want to put a prayer up here. I don't know what to do. I want us maybe, let's say this prayer together as we close the service. I think for Christians, it's a good prayer. I think for people who want to become Christians, or I like to call Jesus followers. Christian has its own kind of weirdness. But Jesus followers. So could we say this together uh, if you feel led? I hope I'm not the only one saying it as we go through it. But I'd like to say this just to get it out there. So let's begin. Heavenly Father, I admit that I am weaker and more sinful than I ever before believed. But through your son, Jesus, I can be more loved and accepted than I ever dared to imagine. I thank you that Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died to pay my debt. Receive me now for his sake. I turn from my sins and receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Amen. Just one last thing. The essence of the Christian life, what separates Christianity from every other religion and philosophy of life is that authentic Christians are, are, are both humble and bold. That separates Christianity from every other religion or philosophy of life. What am I talking about? We're humble because we know we're sinners. And we know that we need God. But we're bold because we know that we are loved. 
So we live in this dynamic tension of humility, constant humility with a boldness because we are loved by him. And so some of you, I want that for you, that you would know the love of God like you've never known it before. Some of us have a hard time. So I want that for you. And I want that for me.